The greatest of all ancient bards was Orpheus, a singer from Thrace, so skilled with the lyre that whenever he played, wild animals stopped to listen, and the very rocks of the earth followed after him. He was the son of the god Apollo, who taught him to play, and Calliope, the leader of the muses. Orpheus fell in love with a nymph named Eurydice, and the two planned a grand wedding. But as the bride was walking through the meadow on her way to the marriage ceremony, she was bitten on the ankle by a poisonous serpent and died. The wedding turned into a funeral, with Orpheus himself singing a lament for Eurydice with bitter tears. Orpheus could not bear the thought of living without his Eurydice, so he decided to make the dangerous journey to the underworld to bring her back. He found an entrance to the gloomy realm of Hades and followed the long path ever downward. When he came at last to the boatman Charon, the old man was so moved by his music that he rode him across the sticks without payment. At the sound of his harp, the three-headed dog Cerberus became quiet. The Furies ceased their shrieking, and even Sisyphus stopped rolling his stone endlessly up his hill. All bloodless shades of Hades wept with an unaccustomed joy at the magical sound of Orpheus. When the bard came to the palace of Hades and stood before the god and his consort Persephone, the king and queen of the underworld were so deeply touched by his song. Orpheus then spoke and asked if he might be allowed to bring his bride back to the world of the living. If this was not possible, then he wished to remain in the pale underworld with her forever rather than live without her. Hades granted his request on the condition that as he journeyed back to the world of light, Orpheus not turn around to look at Eurydice, but to trust that she was there behind him. The poet gladly agreed and started up the steep path. As the hours went by, Orpheus climbed up the long trail with nothing but silence behind him. The thought that Eurydice was not really following him weighed ever more heavily on his mind. What if Hades had tricked him? At last, just as he neared the surface, the urge to see his bride overpowered him. He stopped and turned around, only to see the ghost of Eurydice fading away. His bride looked at him with infinite sadness in her eyes and spoke a single word, farewell. Orpheus ran back down the path, but no one may enter Hades twice while living. Charon refused him passage, and Hades himself barred his gates against him. For seven days, Orpheus sat on the banks of the Styx and wept, then made his way slowly back to the land of the living. There he shunned all contact with his fellow men and women, seeking only to play sad songs alone in the forest. A wandering group of women came upon him there, worshippers of Dionysus, and perhaps because they became so enamored of him, they fought over him and tore his body to pieces. His severed head fell into a stream and floated down to the sea, but his tongue found breath one final time and whispered the name of his beloved, Eurydice. Oh My Gods, a modern retelling of Greek and Roman myths by Philip Freeman. This is our numinous nature. 
and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same, or maybe you long to. Wow. That song is so incredibly beautiful and haunting and accompanied with that ancient Greek myth brings, uh, makes my eyes water and makes the top of my head tingle with chills. I wanted to say a big thank you to Jan Lorenz, who is a multi-stringed musician from Switzerland. That is his song, which is uh, titled My First Song on the Lear Harp. And I don't know, but it pretty much sounds as beautiful as it can get. And I can understand how in that myth, Orpheus playing for the creatures of the underworld would stop them in their eternal pattern of damnation or whatever their role is in the underworld to listen to such beauty. And on that note, today's podcast guest, Earl Suter, has provided a handful of music for some of the past episodes the ones on um, different Appalachian topics over the last few months, um, Earl has provided the banjo and mandolin renditions for those episodes. So today with Earl, Earl is one of our close friends now, and he is a caver. He's the manager of um, a cave system in West Virginia, and he is deep into cave rescue. He's got a very formal title, which is the Eastern Region National Cave Rescue Commission Deputy Resource Section Chief. Quite long. Um, so Earl is into caving, into cave rescue, and he was a former EMT and a former firefighter. So this episode, um, definitely towards the, the first half is really about caving and some of the wonders of being in a cave and how how some of the, the natural history of caves, things like that. But the second half of this episode gets into Earl's experiences with rescuing. And um, this one has really stuck with me for days. And uh, it's really moved me. And I've been kind of like almost overwhelmed by it. Um, many things have come to mind going over this episode while I've been working on it. Uh, one is just kind of this notion of like a small town hero. You know, to me, Earl is a, kind of an unassuming and very humble guy. And if you passed him in the grocery store, there's nothing, you would never get the, uh, you would never, you would never get the idea that this guy in many ways has been a hero. He's gone into fire. He's gone underground to help people. He has you know, been an EMT for decades, pulling people living and dead, you know, out of terrible situations. And, and the theme of the underworld, I feel is very strong on this one. Obviously you have the caves, which are, uh, which are quite literally the underworlds, but then very much these themes of the underworld, whether it's in the inferno of firefighting or 
in the um, emergency fields of, uh, you know, being around the dead. So there's very much an underworld theme here. And what has been coming to mind over the past few days is a Jungian or Joseph Campbellian idea, which is that one should know the myth that they're in. So what is the archetypal pattern that you're living in? The Like where, if you know your myth, if you're familiar with myths, then you know the trajectory of perhaps where your your life story is, is heading. Or you can see some of the obstacles coming if you if you know which story you're in. Not that I necessarily know which one I'm in, but um, you know, Earl has become my friend. But so much of what we talked on the podcast was news to me, especially some of the more harrowing experiences that he's gone through. And it just so intensely it struck me that my friend has has like Orpheus in the in that beginning myth. My friend has literally been down in the underworld, has been in the land of the dead and, you know, has tales to tell of it. Um, So this one really moved me. So obviously for this one, we really kind of focus on cave rescue. So by nature, this one is going to be a little, little more intense and kind of talk about some of the dangers and even life-threatening scenarios when you get into caving. But, you know, 99% of the time, if you're going with a group, if you're going with someone who's part of the NSS, the National Speleological Society, um, if you're, you know, you w- if you're going with someone who's part of the NSS, then you're going to be following all the rules with, with lighting and, and telling people where you're going, et cetera. Then it's, it's very, very safe. And, you know, people go caving all the time. There's no issues. So, um, if you're interested in getting into caving, um, Earl mentioned you can go to caves.org and within there you can uh, go to, let me see here, you can click go caving and then you can click find a grotto. The word grotto is a term used by cavers, which just means a club. So when you click find a grotto, you can find a local club and it will literally tell you their email or phone number. You can call or email them and uh, I almost guarantee if you show interest, they will invite you to come out. They will let you use their gear. And um, you're going to see some stuff that very few humans will ever see and truly enter an enchanted world. Okay, so I wanted to say thank you to some new folks who are helping this uh, traveling podcast project on Patreon. Um, links below. There's going to be links for the caving and links to Jan's music. All of that will be in the show notes. Also, there's a link to my Patreon. And uh, I'd like to say thank you to Working Class Woodsman, to Jeff um, McLaughlin, McLaughlin, uh, Heron O'Brien, and Sonny Phillips. Those are, I think, the newest folks for this episode. And uh, for those that have been helping kind of for the past few months now, huge thanks to Jess Paget. Ash Barron, Rachel Hawkshaw, Ann Stanley, Bailey Grenert, Franklin Renshaw, Heron O'Brien, Jamie Nudd, James Mann, uh, Leslie Peterson-Cohen, Ryan Goechner, Rambler, uh, Steve Enchilds, Tristan Harper, and Tyler Lively. So for this week's readings, I'm going to read two newspaper clippings from the late 1800s one of which is about Luray Caverns, which is a very famous show cave here in our region. And show cave means that it's filled with lights and uh, basically a sidewalk and long lines and a gift shop. 
and very much the antithesis of what we talk about on this podcast, which is wild caving, which is basically a hole in the woods that you descend into with a map made by cavers. Um, but uh, imagine what these show caves must have been like back in the day before they were lit up with electricity, when you just uh, might be on a very gentlemanly uh, party with um, candlelights and lanterns going down into one of these caves. The Granada Sentinel, May 5th, 1894. Lost in a cavern, the sensations described by one who had tried it thoroughly. The sensations of a man lost in a cave are indescribable, said a traveler recently. I was once in a cave under Lookout Mountain for four days and three nights, and it was an experience that can never be forgotten. Five of us started out to explore the cave, which at its entrance looks like little more than a hole in the ground. We thought that in its innermost recesses, we would probably find the capacious rooms with glistening stalactites common to the caves throughout that section. We took lanterns and chalk with which to mark the walls in order to be certain that we could retrace our steps without difficulty. The cave was a disappointment to us. We climbed over huge rocks, squeezed through narrow passages, and found several springs from which little streams flowed through the cavern, but no handsome rooms or overhanging stalactites. So far as we could judge, we had advanced about five miles when we concluded to explore one more passage and return. Suddenly, our lights went out, evidently on account of some noxious gas, and we were in total darkness. We climbed back out of the place where the disaster had occurred in order to relight our lanterns, when to our horror, we discovered that there was not a match to be had. There were several passageways, and not a chance in a thousand of our ever finding the way back to the outside world again. To leave the place we were in was to leave the chalk marks which constituted the only guide. In our loneliness, it seemed as if the walls were closing in upon us and would crush us. The only hope was that our friends would remember where we had started and would organize a searching party, which might be guided by the chalk marks. All day and all night we waited without food or sleep, and the long, dark hours dragged their weary time along until it seemed to us that we would go crazy. We could not tell whether it was day or night, telling all the stories we knew and trying to keep each other cheerful until every topic of conversation was exhausted, and the silence was only broken by the monotonous dripping of water in the adjoining chamber of the cavern. Exhausted by fear and hunger, my mind was given up to the most fantastic imaginings. Weird shapes and forms without substance appeared on every hand. Black and red specks floated before my eyes, and at length came a numbness in which I felt no longer, until the sound of a horn reverberated among the rocks, and we knew that we were saved. A rescuing party was following the chalk marks. We danced, we shouted, we hugged each other in a delirium of joy, and a few minutes later we were found. Despite our weakness, we made good time getting out of the cave, and when we reached daylight once more, we found that we had occupied the cave for four days and three nights. The Bossier Banner, October 16th, 1879. 
The Cave of Luray, A Visit to a Virginian Wonderland. I must begin my account of the Cave of Luray with Warrenton, because it was here we started on our expedition to the cave, and Warrenton is well known to the people of Norfolk, so many of whom have pleasant memories of this charming place. I think many have felt as I have after climbing our mountain here and standing under the view tree. They have looked westward to the towering heights of the Blue Ridge, wondering and longing to see what beautiful land lies beyond those blue mountains. I have been told of the valley of the Shenandoah, that land of fertile plains and dewy meads. The next morning we were impatient to behold the wonders that should be revealed. A short walk brought us to the hill where a house has been built over the entrance to the cave. It is proposed to have a hotel there. The site is perfect. No one could wish a lovelier view. A long flight of steps led down to the door through which we passed with our guide, each one provided with candles with a tin reflector. Our first sensation was of darkness. We realized what was the darkness that might be felt. It seemed to close around us, and our little candles made scarcely any impression upon it with their feeble flames. After a while, our eyes accustomed themselves to the strange darkness, and we could then see dim passages through which we went, mysterious shapes around us. We came to an open space. The roof was high above our heads. From it hung stalactites, great and small, and folds of drapery like curtains, partly concealing gloomy caverns, black as night. Stalagmites rose like giant columns from the ground. Some were of a yellowish, earthy color. Others were white and glistening. Here we decided to burn some of the red fire we had brought with us. The rosy light flashed over fantastic forms, giving them a new beauty. A human interest is given to the cave by a tragedy here enacted. Years ago, a poor Indian boy was lost in these deep recesses. What must have been his feelings of horror and dismay, buried alive in such a vault? We find the footprint of his moccasin, and notice how he has slipped a little on the muddy path. The print has become as hard as stone, and there it has remained to touch with pity for his fate the hearts of those of another race after long ages have passed and his people have been swept from the land. Some distance from the footmark, showing how he had wandered, we find where he had fallen. Poor boy. He struggled hard, no doubt, for his life, but a deep and terrible pitfall gaped before him. Into it he fell, and there his skeleton now lies, half buried in a stony covering. I cannot tell half of what might be told about this marvelous cave. A visit to it is like having a glimpse of another world, a land of shadows, and a realm of mystery. And now when I look over towards those blue mountains, the charm of the unknown is gone. But in its place are pleasant memories of a smiling valley, a pretty little town resting upon its bosom. And far beneath sunlight and moonlight, a land that exceeds all my childish fantasies ever pictured in my dreams of Wonderland. Well, we're in Clark County, Virginia, right now. This is uh, in the on the uh, in the Shenandoah Valley. 
Uh, it's about 50 miles west of D.C. and uh, sort of near Winchester. And uh, it's a, a suburban rural area that's uh, got a lot of horses and farms. and mm-hmm. uh, But definitely being built up. Uh, yeah, Clark County is uh, is trying to keep development down, but uh, mm. but certainly all around, especially like Loudoun County and whatnot, it's very becoming a suburb of D.C. Mm, exactly. So you're our, you and Cheryl, your wife, are mm-hmm. our two main caving friends. So we're definitely going to be talking a lot about caving. So because of that, so this region is a very good region for caving from here. Could you just, so when I started getting interested in caving, I quickly learned to the Shenandoah Valley into Appalachia, down into the Kentuckys, all those general regions are hot for caving. Like, why is that? Like, why is this a good area? And why does it keep getting better as you go along that Shenandoah Valley and then into the Appalachians? Well, um, I first got into it when I lived on the Eastern Shore, so it was a long drive uh, for me. It was hundreds of miles, and that's not unusual for cavers to drive hundreds of miles to yeah, go well, caving. That, that blows me away. You guys have no problems driving like five hours to go caving no. for a, a, a morning and an afternoon. And this is true all over the country, and I assume all over the world, that, that people from Ohio make maps of caves in Kentucky. And you just have to, if you're interested in caves and you want to uh, to do this, you've got to travel unless you live near caves but in answer to your question earlier this um this limestone area around here is is pretty porous up and down route 81 interstate 81 and the shenandoah valley and as you get further south from here well let me let me reverse that as you get up into pennsylvania the caves get smaller and Mm. uh probably less interesting and uh, then as you get down in this area, you get more caves. And then the further, maybe you get 150, 200 miles south of here, down around Lewisburg, West Virginia, and uh, southwestern Virginia, um, they are very large caves, and there are lots of them. And, of course, if you keep going down that direction, you get into some big famous caves like Mammoth Cave, Kentucky, which is mm. the largest cave, longest cave in the world. And weren't you saying, like, when you came to visit our house, we're on the border of West Virginia, that our county has, like, hundreds, if not thousands of caves? Yeah, there's one spot on Route 220 uh, in in West Virginia where I guess it's probably about an hour's drive from you, where you can, uh, you're within one mile radius of a thousand caves. That's insane. Yeah. There are a lot of caves around here. So, um... For the layman, and even for me, that I don't fully understand it, um, like what was going on geologically that created this? So you said the limestone, but what do you know a little tidbit about kind of the what form geological formations created this environment? I do, and when I take uh, Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts and, and and people caving that haven't don't know anything about geology. Uh, I, I was given the same little spiel because um, it makes it more interesting. Uh, if you look along the side of a road, you know, often you'll see sedimentary rocks that are in layers, mm-hmm. like a pancake on top of another pancake, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. The oldest being at the bottom and the youngest being at the top. 
And so if you go back about 350 million years in this area, um, this was a shallow inland sea. Mm. Well, it wasn't inland, but it was, it was, it, they, it was completely different. Pangaea was the continent that, that split apart and made Europe and Africa and North America and everything. But it was, we're talking about a long time ago before there were fish even. Mm. There were just these little animals with calci calcium shells. And they were in this sea that was maybe 100 feet deep, 350 million years ago. And uh, like I said, the whole world was completely different. Pangaea was one big continent that split apart. So we're talking about basically the eastern part of the United States, more or less, over maybe to the Mississippi. Um, so these little animals would die over time and they'd float to the bottom and their little calcium shells would settle on the bottom and over millions and millions and millions of years they would become compacted more and more um, into these layers of sedimentary rock. So then maybe about uh, three or four million years ago, uh, after there were a lot of other geologic changes, you know, the, the continents were moving and there was no longer this inland sea. Uh, water would, of course, run through areas of least resistance and make rivers and valleys and things like that and cut, cut them down um, in the rock. And it would... Uh, would get into cracks just like just like if you took a big sheet of glass and you laid it out on the ground in your yard it wouldn't take very long before it would start cracking mm. uh, so these so this uh calcium carbonate rock uh would crack and move around geologically you know things would move and push other things around make folds and mountains and valleys um, so the, um, <clears throat> so the water in the little streams that were in the cut down valleys would, uh, get into the cracks and the cracks and most rainwater and water in the ground is slightly acidic and calcium carbonate is very, very susceptible to being eaten out by acid. Mm. If you just dr dripped a, a one drop battery acid on calcium carbonate rock it would eat a little hole in it. You know, mm -hmm. it's very susceptible. So the uh, little bit of acidity in the water would eat out these cracks, and they would get bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, so eventually mice could get in them, and, you know, and then they'd get bigger and bigger, and people could go through these passageways. And that's basically what has formed this kind of cave around here. Mm. There are different kinds of caves and the ones around here are, are and most of them, I, I think I could say, are made by water running through cracks in the, in the calcium carbonate rocks. Interestingly, in... So you're, you're literally walking through a passage carved by water. Yes. And that's why it has that kind of like organic shape. Like it feels very, uh, it's very kind of... It kind of is like soft and kind of like like a intern inside of a body. It's all like carved out 
It is. It's it's made. Uh, it's not harsh. It's kind of rounded and. Yeah, unless there happens to be some rock in it that's not soluble to water, mm, mm. like chert or mm. you know slate or mm. something like that. Um, but there are all sorts of different caves and ways ways they're from formed uh like in new mexico and um texas and down near the mexican border in that area around carlsbad caverns national park the caves were all formed differently because they're out in the middle of the desert you're mm. out in the middle of the desert you don't expect to find caves you know you expect you know desert and uh but what what happened was all the rocks there got folded and it used to be a big uh uh reef there and it's of course calcium carbonate too and what happened there was the acid came up from underneath sulfuric acid uh, i believe and it ate the caves out from underneath it's not rainwater there but the caves if you look at mammoth cave it's very different from carlsbad mm. caverns because mm. they were formed differently Hmm. So I think it's kind of interesting. And if you get down deep enough in some of those caves out in Texas and New Mexico and whatnot, you actually get into sulf into acid. Well, um, the I mean, for me, and I think Vivian, why we like caving is because I feel as though you, and we've talked about this a bunch, just you're getting to see something, another world. Like there are plenty of people who love nature and who love hiking, who know all about the trees, all about the animals, all about the landscape, but I so rarely do you hear about anyone with knowledge of this underworld that we're all walking on top of. And when you get to go down there and look in it, it, it it's so it's so surreal. And it's just so fascinating that it, it's almost hard to think about unless you're regularly going and looking at it. There's a lot of the worlds there's a lot of the world that is karst and karst is the word yeah, I want to ask, for, what exactly does karst mean? It means that uh, that topography that lends itself to forming caves. Okay. And uh, it uh, a lot of the world is like that. I mean, you know, if you look at the stone forests in China or, or Cuba or, you know, you see lots of stone formations in China in these old paintings from, you know, 5,000 years ago and all underneath that is is uh, eaten out uh, limestone, and it's all over the world. I mean, it's in Cuba, it's in Mexico. The deepest caves are in Eastern Europe. The longest cave is in the United States, Mammoth Cave in Kentucky. It's about four hundred and seventy miles long right now. And um, well, some of the stuff I think is so fascinating are those cenotes in in uh, Mexico and whatnot. The um, the holes that yeah. then fill up with rainwater that people do the cave diving into. And I think a lot of the, um, there's a lot of uh, archaeology that the Mesoamerican um, cultures that like they would often throw their sacrifices into those cenotes. Pretty, mm -hmm. Absolutely fascinating stuff. Yeah, a lot of people don't think, uh, they think of caves, at least to me around here, with mountains and valleys and things like that. But Caves are everywhere. I mean, you don't usually think of Florida and caves, but Florida is littered with caves. They're just all underwater. Mm, mm. And so, yeah, people who are into caving in underwater caves are, it's, 
it's regarded as, I don't know if this is exactly true, but it probably is, uh, that it's the most dangerous avocation in the world. The danger. Arguably. I mean, didn't a guy that you guys are in your community just die from that? Yeah, just recently a very experienced cave diver. Uh, yeah, he did. He died. He, uh, and I think it was a mechanical issue. It wasn't like he had a heart attack or anything. It's mm -hmm. just cave diving is intrinsically dangerous. Where was he? Uh, Iowa, I think. Iowa. I think he was in. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, he while, wasn't in Florida. Okay. While we're on the topic, you told me that some people have done. Okay. When I think about cave diving and when you watch documentaries about it, it's always uh, quite tropical. Like you were saying, it's in Florida. It seems to be a lot in Mexico. So you just mentioned earlier this morning while we we're having our coffee that you've, when, when you have friends or acquaintances that are, that are mapping caves in West Virginia, that mm -hmm. they brought their scuba gear to try to connect a cave by diving. So I had no idea people are doing some of that diving, even in areas not known for the cave diving. That kind of blew me away. Yeah, there are a lot of sumps around here. Can you just so sump, describe what that yeah, is? Yeah, a sump is a area where you're going along in a cave passage, and the floor is a stream, say. And uh, then you get to a part where the ceiling comes down, and you have like a pool at the end of the passage where it ends. But it doesn't really end. It's just eaten out the cave underneath that and it continues on so if you got a cave if you suspect that there's a continuation of the cave you know strongly enough then you get your hands on on you know your local cave diver and uh and they if if they're in a good mood they'll come and uh, look at it for you and they'll they'll dive it and say oh yeah this well i went for you know 500 feet and it didn't do anything or it connected to the it connected, it came up, and there was another pa pa passage continued. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. Now, we don't, how, now are in our general area, are those, because I've gone in some of the water features, are they clear or are they going to be like totally silted out? Like how did the cave diver explore that? I think around here you could, gen, you know, that is to say West Virginia, uh, say we're talking about eastern West Virginia, Um it's generally clear until you – it's like walking in a stream that's – Once you start moving around, you kick up Once you start moving around, you kick up a bunch of silt and stuff comes down off the ceiling and you I can't mean, see I, anything. Okay, so here's some things that was not obvious to me, not knowing nothing about caving. One is that, um, you know, I had been to show caves. So a show cave mm -hmm. means like the tourist attraction where you're on a boardwalk basically – and there's always lights everywhere and you just make a little loop and then that's it. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about wild caving in the woods. Um, basically, a lot of safety regulations. Um, and then um, I, I didn't, it didn't cross my mind that the caves that you guys and your community through grottos, your, your clubs mm -hmm. are, are going into. Yes, many of them have been People have been going into them for decades and there's maps and you guys carry maps when you lead groups. Mm -hmm. But there are plenty of caves that you guys are still exploring that no one has gone into. Like that blew me away that there, you know, there's really a notion that kind of the world has been fully explored. Mm -hmm. um, you know, all the jungles, all the 
frozen tundras, but then the there's so many caves that are just like in rural areas that are unexplored that you guys are still going in there and doing stuff. So it's fascinating, you know, that there are guys bringing scuba deer down in the bottom there to just kind of figure out what, where the hell does this go? Yeah, There's no map for this. It's very interesting. Uh, I think that, um, I guess I've developed a kind of a stock answer when people say caving, you know, what's that? Why do you want to do that? You know, and uh, I think the answer is the best answer is this. I, you know, I say to them, would you like to walk on Mars? And they say, yeah, that would be really neat. I'd love to see Mars personally. I say, you'll never will. Probably. I say, would you like to see the bottom of the Marianas Trench in the ocean, in the Pacific Ocean? And they say, yeah, that would be really interesting. Go down there in a submarine and see, I think it's seven miles deep. I can't remember exactly. But I say, well, guess what? You probably never will. But you know what you can do? You can stand on a spot where no human being has ever seen or walked if you get into caving because there are lots and lots of caves and we're discovering new caves all the time. And some of them, I think most cavers would agree, are a good number of them are not connected to the surface that are under there that are probably very nice caves, but we just don't know about them. So You're saying there's no entrance. There's no, no known entrance. entrance. Yeah. There may be someday, you know, with erosion and whatnot. But I think that's why caving is basically interesting because you are in a completely alien environment. One thing that people get a misimpression about when they go into a commercial show cave like Carlsbad or Luray, Luray or, you know, uh, there are hundreds of them, is wild caves are actually more interesting because they've made walkways in there and flattened everything out and taken a lot of rocks out sometimes put in railing and obviously lights and some of them have elevators and gift shops and stuff, you know, but, but real, uh, and at one time those caves were very, uh, hard to navigate. You know, there's a lot of climbing, crawling over huge rocks and little rocks and crawling through streams. And it's not an environment that we're used to. And that's one of the reasons that I think it's so interesting is it, it, it's a completely natural environment. Another thing that's interesting about it that I, I talk to some people about, sometimes we'll take beginners on trips and we'll sit around and we'll have lunch in a cave and, you know, we'll turn out our lights and I go, you know, this is what it, total darkness looks like. You'll never see this anywhere else, uh, most likely, um, is that um, it's, it's virtually the same as it was for recorded history. I just think it's interesting to sit in one spot and think about it. When you when can you do this? You can't even do it in out in nature completely. Uh, you know, like in the middle of nowhere in Alaska, it's still change. It's di different than it was ten thousand years ago. But mm -hmm. if you go into a cave and you sit down in a spot and you look around, it is the same as it was when Abraham Lincoln gave the Gettysburg Address or when the Sumerians. Uh, you know, fought the Babylonians and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's, 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 it's one of the very few environments that you can actually look at that's the same as it was 
100,000 years ago. Stupendous. That's interesting. And you mentioned a handful of words, which is definitely how I feel, which are there's an element of alienness and there's an element of you. Well, I don't know what word you use, but there's an element of like the first person. Mm -hmm. And there's without a doubt, there's an astronaut vibe. I mean, especially, so I think when most people, if they've never gone caving, they probably are envisioning just like squeezing through little passages the whole time. And certainly that's a major aspect, but there's other times where you'll come out into a, a room like the size of, I mean, like almost like a stadium for some, no, maybe not a stadium, but you'll come out into a, an, an enormous chamber and be like on a cliff looking down a dark, yeah. into a dark abyss. So there's an element of being on an alien planet. Like, uh, and I often, you know, people are wearing their backpacks with their gear. They've, everyone has a headlamp and a helmet. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you're looking at your fellow cavers ahead of you and they're just, you know, kind of small figures walking on this black abyss of boulders where only your headlamp illuminates what's ahead of you. I mean, I feel like I'm looking at astronauts and it's absolutely, I mean, it's beautiful to behold. And um, it, it often would bring to mind, like one of my favorite artists is H.R. Giger, who is a Swiss artist, um, now deceased, but he's famous because he was the art director for the movie Alien. Mm -hmm. So all those creatures, all those worlds were already invented in his artwork. So his whole artwork is very, uh, extremely disturbing, but very anatomical and very, like very much like inside of organs and uh, very phallic and then very uh, just body, just dark body is kind of like his vibe, but it all seems like an alien world. And so much of the caves remind me of, the film Alien and the artwork of H.R. Giger. You just have these, these passages that seem like you could be in, inside of an intestine mm -hmm. or you know, just like the way that they've, they've got ripples down them. It's like a tube with ripples. Yeah. Like you could be like in a colon or something or, or you could be in, obviously, I mean, the association obviously with the womb is obvious. I mean, you're just like moving through kind of a, uh, a like, a uterus and a passage. I mean, there's such a bodily element. Mm -hmm. It's a, obviously it's just so bodily. Um, so yeah, there's a strange connection with being in an alien world mm -hmm. and then also being inside of the womb or a body. And then obviously I have a connection with like the tomb from womb to tomb. You know, there's very mm -hmm. much, you're in like a sepulcher, you're in the, a crypt. I, I mean, I just absolutely love, like, I love the hunting and everything. Mm -hmm. And I, and the caving is like equally as mysterious. I guess I like it because um, there's a mystery to it. Mm -hmm. And that's what I feel with caving. Like, yeah. I, there's lots of activities that are physical and whatnot that I don't think really have an intense mystery. But the caving is, there's an element of exploration of incredible mystery. I mean, I'm going on a tangent now, mm -hmm. but you know, there's so many spiritual traditions where, where um, mystics would go to a cave or um, like a young person would go to a cave to become, you know, get their life mission or whatnot. Oh, yeah. I just love all that stuff. Yeah. I'm uh, going on a tangent. No, no. I mean, Muhammad went in a cave when he had his revelations, you know, uh, and I'm sure countless native North American peoples yeah, it's the sensory deprivation mm. and, and, you know, the, other things that uh, cause them to have 
visions and things. No doubt. A lot of sensory deprivation. And no doubt, like when you're with a group, everyone's quiet. You turn your headlights out. You sit in that blackness. There's an incredible sense of peace. And you might hear like a distant little echoing drip. And it is so peaceful. Like just like an, an eternal sleep. Like the sleep of the fetus or the sleep of the dead. It is. It's like the eternal sleep. Um, a friend of mine, Roger Brucker, who's from Ohio, who's written a lot, a lot of cave books. If you look him up, B-R-U-C-K-E-R, Roger Brucker. Um, he and I have had discussions about, he, and he says, it's creepy. And uh, I mean, he's like one of the most famous cavers in the world. And and my wife says, oh, it's not creepy. It's uh, it's interesting, but it's not. It doesn't creep me out. Personally, I think if it wasn't a little creepy, it wouldn't be interesting. Hmm. It is. It is creepy. I mean, even I mean, you when you go into the cave, you learn the cave, so you don't get lost, and you learn about safety and everything. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, basically, it's creepy. You know, you go into a hole in the ground that goes miles and miles underground, <laughs> and you know, it's it's not the usual thing that people do. <laughs> so. <laughs> <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, yeah, it's kind of creepy. Um, but I mean, and the, and the same would be said with when you're hunting by yourself and in enormous tracks of, there's an element to, there's an exciting, and I love the word numinous, the podcast is our numinous nature. There's an element of mystery and fear when you're in the presence of like nature at its most like grand and you're like alone in that or vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So when you're in the darkness of the underground or you're in a huge tract of wilderness, there's definitely an, a tinge of like, yeah, what, I don't know if creepy is not the right word, but there's a tinge of just like, you, you're in the presence of, of, of awe or something when you're in something like that. Yeah, it's awesome. It's very interesting. Uh, I think partly because people aren't used to it and m most people never go to an environment that's, completely alien mm. i mean you just don't i mean mm. you might try but uh it's completely alien element there's no question about it you might be on a cave in neptune for all you know you know mm -hmm. it's and and that's why they then they're different environments that's why they find so many different things down there you know archaeological things well, let's have, talk about some of that because i love all that and and medicines you know that developed from microorganisms and and things uh, that they've discovered down there that don't live anywhere else. It's a wait, wait, what? They they have developed medicines from microorganisms that they've found in caves. That's why. Really. Also, they're looking for um, space exploration. They look for places that are alien hmm. to uh, you know. So so sometimes they'll. Uh, get into caves to a certain extent, um, you know, just like they train underwater and things like that. Um, but, but they are very alien environments and they're very different from what, what, what's up with the medicine. Cause I know when we've gone with you guys, sometimes you'll see these strange kind of like funguses or, mm -hmm. um, I don't know if it's mycelium. It's like these strange, like fungus balls, like mm -hmm. these strange little webs. I'm not really familiar with what medicines have been developed but i do know that they that scientists do go to caves mm. and they go to very remote locations mm. to find organisms not just to know about know about them and categorize them but to discover their 
properties that might be mm. beneficial. Fascinating. Well, let's talk about, because, um, so you guys, so there's, there's really a structure in caving, you know, mm -hmm. which I didn't realize. It's not like with hunting, you just go, mm -hmm. um, you know, you got to get licenses and you got to be knowledge and stuff like that, but you can just go, mm -hmm. you know, um, caving seem, is extremely structured. Like there's a national, the NSS national speleological society. Is that it? Yes. So you, there's like a national kind of uh, group, and then there are little clubs in different regions that kind of are connected to that. That um, will have people who are extremely extreme experts like you that are helping, um, you know, guide people who are interested and and go on expeditions of these new caves and um, raise money to protect caves. Mm -hmm. So one of your roles, you and Cheryl, your wife, is you guys. Um, are stewards of this uh, series of caves. One cave system on the side of a slope. But um, so I bring that up because you guys are so knowledgeable of those few caves and you start talking mm -hmm. about things that are found. I mean, you've shown us, let's talk a little bit about some of the archaeology or paleontology that are sometimes, you could even just talk about the ones from the place you steward. Mm -hmm. Like you showed us some stuff. Yeah. Like, let's talk about some of that because that blows my mind. Because, like you said, you're look, you're connected to time immemorial. Well, that's one of the interest. Another interesting thing about caves is that all over the world, uh, they preserve or time capsules artifacts. Yeah, um, from the Dead Sea Scrolls in the in the Near East um, or Mid East, I guess I should say, to Salt's Cave in Kentucky, which is on the property of Mammoth Cave National Park, uh, contains, uh, you know, we have questions about the past, obviously. And uh, one question that might come up in your mind is, gee, I wonder what people in North America ate 10,000 years ago. Well, in Salt's Cave, you can go in, in there and uh, find paleo feces in there that have been there for thousands of years and you can you know if you're a scientist you can look at them and say well they ate these nuts and they ate the deer and you know whatnot and uh so yeah they're time capsules you can find things in there that are preserved especially like you're talking about around here the eastern united states say the central eastern United States. Yeah, anything come to mind, before we get to the your caves, uh -huh. anything come to mind, so really fascinating stuff that's been found in the Virginias or on the West Virginia line over the past century, I guess? Like, uh, I, I know, um, you know, some Native American pottery, mm -hmm. stuff like that. Well, um, generally, uh, what comes to mind is... Um, has to do with, uh, for example, uh, the War of 1812 and the Civil War. I know that the DuPont Chemical Company um, in Wilmington, Delaware, only sold gunpowder to uh, the United States, uh, the, the northern, the United States Army. They wouldn't sell it to the south, so the Confederacy had to make their own gunpowder, and bat guano or bat 
uh, feces are rich in uh, nitrates and are very good for as a component to make gunpowder. So there was a lot of um, when they would find caves with uh, a lot of guano in them, uh, they would mine it and they would bring it out and dry it and make it into uh, potassium nitrate and uh, certain amount of dry, dried potassium nitrate with dried charcoal and uh, sulfur is they made gunpowder out of it. So extraordinary stuff. There's a lot of uh, there. There were and still are some places a lot of artifacts left over from the mining operations. Mm. So would they just shovel it out? As I understand it, they would sometimes they were slaves that they had doing this. And I believe what they would do in some cases, it probably varied, but I think they would take sacks in there, big sacks, mm. probably, you know, I don't know, some kind of meal sack or whatever. And they would fill it with uh, the. Well, the bat guano kind of turns into yellowish powder, and they would fill it with that, and then they'd carry it out. I'm sure it was very labor-intensive because, like I say, the floor is very irregular, and, you know, so you'd— You have to imagine you'd get sick handling bat shit for days, weeks, months. You have to imagine. Well, there is one cave that I managed that's very dusty, and we don't even like to go in there more than once a year just because— you know, you get, I'm sure those miners in there got silicosis from breathing in all of that dust constantly. Silicosis is um, it's, sediment well, getting it, in your well, lungs? Well, I mean, it's like black lung diseases mm -hmm. from, for the miners. Uh, from uh, you know, coal. For the miners. Yeah. And this would be for like sand mines and, you know, silica. Uh, is that the, is that the cave where you guys, you guys found like an old shoe or something? Like a miner's yeah. shoe or something? Yeah. Well, over the years, people do seem to have removed some of these more interesting items, mm. which is unfortunate, and it's illegal. Um, but there are still some artifacts that you can find in 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 in, in some caves. Um, well, I went with your group on one um, that had a river in it, mm -hmm. and when you get in there, I mean, first of all, seeing a water source underground is stupendous mm -hmm. um being in a fully enclosed dark chamber with a raging stream or river in front of you is surreal mm -hmm. and uh one of them there's like someone had and of course it could be modern graffiti but someone had carved into the wall like 18 i don't know what the date is but 18 something yeah it's amazing what people uh had the nerve to do with just torches you know i mean so would those slave miners just have had a fire torch uh i believe over the time it would have either been a there's evidence that it was uh sometimes you take sticks and you bundle them together hmm. and uh some of the things that we found in this one cave are uh are that so, and, and then others, it would be like coal oil lamps mm. and then carbide lamps, you know, over time and then electric, you know, and now of course it's LED, which is stu super, um, 
But no, I mean, in you know, we were talking about Salt's Cave in Kentucky. There's evidence that the that the native peoples went literally, you know, over a mile back in there. My God, I don't know whether they were sent on some kind of, um, you know, a journey to you know, you know, marking the beginning of manhood or something, which some some of the tribes did that. I don't know whether it was a a thing like a ritual, were, a manhood ritual, or some yeah, kind of coming of age thing, or whether they were just curious. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's amazing. I mean, if you think about it, we you know we go into caves now, miles into a cave, but we have lots and lots of different lights and extra batteries and all sorts of redundancy, and we know you know the people know where we're going to go because we tell them and we tell them we're going to be back, and if we don't show up, they come looking for us, but. You know, these people hundreds of years ago or thousands of years ago, um, they really had a lot of uh, backbone to go. Courage, balls. Yeah, to go back in a mile back in a cave with just uh, torches and presumably extra torches. And, you know, it's so, yeah, I mean, caves have been explored for a long time. Incredible. Let's talk about some of the uh, paleontology. So one thing you quickly notice when you go caving, like you said in the opening, because of this ancient sea, often the walls will be filled with little, um, I I don't think they're called mollusks, but shelled creatures, ancient shelled creatures. So there's a lot of fossil, um, there's a lot of the fossil record and and a lot of interesting things with ancient bones in there. and, And one of the most amazing things that I was stupefied, and I've talked about it on the podcast a handful of times, mm-hmm. is we got to some chamber that I don't know how long it took, maybe 45 minutes to get there, maybe an hour. We mm-hmm. were crawling for about 20 minutes at the <laughs> at the in, at the beginning. Yeah. Just on your belly. But we got to an area and then you guys just point out some undeniable scratches on the cave wall. I was like, what the hell is that? What was it? Well, uh, this was told to me by some paleontologists, so it's not my speculation. I would say that it is educa- an educated guess. Uh, but um, there are places in caves that we think are scratches from animals, bears, and uh, cats, you know, that don't exist anymore, that are extinct, and... The saber-toothed cats, right? Yeah, there and, and you do find didn't uh, they find skeletons? Yeah, and, yeah, like uh, like this friend of mine, Fred Grady, uh, who was uh, he's retired now, but uh, he uh, he did a lot of work at uh, at these caves that we take care of in West Virginia, and uh, and you know he he found a number of species there that uh, were they didn't know existed, and um, he discovered species. Yeah. What? Like yeah. what? Uh, mostly they worked on early mammals. So we're not talking about, um, you know, uh, sea life. But th- the people who worked at, the, at these caves that, that I manage uh, were interested in early uh, small mammals. So little rodents and stuff? Yeah. And, that were uh, unknown to science. Oh, we're yeah, we're discovered in the caves that we've gone in. Yeah. Incredible. There are all sorts of 
things in these caves if you know what to look for. Incredible. Um, and of course, like you said about the the rock and the fossils in the rock, as this limestone forms, some of it is softer and it gets kind of crushed into a fine gray substance. And some of it doesn't. Some of it retains shells and, you know, fossilized shells. And uh, other animals, um, like on the seafloor, there was one called a crinoid, which is sort of like an anemone, I guess. It was sessile. It was attached at its base of its stalk to uh, some substrate, like a rock or something. And, you know, at the end of the stalk were little fingers like a jellyfish, and it would that's how it would get catch food and stuff. Mm. But you do see lots of crinoid stems and, and uh, shells. Um, and in, these in, are hundreds of millions of years old. Yeah. Yeah, incredible. Yeah, they are. Those cat scratches, didn't you tell me that they found the cat bones right there? And that they're now at a museum? Yeah. Fred Grady did a lot of work for the Smithsonian. So he was a legitimate scientist. And and his his cat that he found is in the Smithsonian. I don't think it's on display, but it's in a in in one of the storage areas. I mean you could you could find it. Uh and this is this is not a bobcat or a mountain lion. This is a an extinct saber-toothed cat. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And, you know, he found the, like, teeth. and So amazing. And I think you told me that was back in the 80s when they found that? I believe so, yes, the mm. 80s. And, you know, they found bears. Mm. Uh, who knows how they got in there, but uh, I can think of one that got back in there a good distance, maybe at least a mile. Do you want to talk about that a little? Mm, well, um, I know. So, so the reason we're being a little coy is because— um, the caving community is very protective about um, protecting these very delicate ecosystems, right? Like you guys right. don't want people to go in there and quote unquote, you know, grave rob. You don't. You guys don't want people messing with uh, stalactites, stalagmites. You guys don't want people if there are any artifacts or any um, fossils. You do extremely, extremely do not want people messing around with those. So, so there's a little bit of a, um, there's a little bit of a, uh, a protective, a protective, um, I don't know what the right word would be, a little bit of secrecy in the caving community. Like, and it's, you, you know, you go with the, like me, I don't just go caving. I reach out to a group. The group has its own kind of ethics and they will take me to a cave and there's kind of like a bit of protection, secrecy and protection about some of these places. Yes. Um, like, okay, so ahead. knowing nothing about caving, mm -hmm. you, you can't just Google, where do I go? Mm -hmm. It's very, it's held, a lot of these are kind of held with a bit of secrecy by the caving community. Yeah, in, in Europe, for example, you, you need to join a caving club and you need to have a certain course load of, Cla of of classes and, and past tests and things before they'll even let you go in a cave, which to me is good. But in this country, we it's a little looser than that. Um, and I think sometimes 
the public, when they interface with cavers, they get the impression that we're, we don't want them to go in the caves. And we kind of hold them for ourselves. And that's not the case. I mean, I can't speak for everyone, but I would say I, I could speak for the majority of serious cavers. And the reason that we don't like to let people know where caves are or, uh, yeah, where caves are and what the nature is, is simply, well, it's for several reasons. First of all, it's safety. There's no way in the world I would want somebody to go into a cave if they didn't know what they were doing. You know, if you'd go there with, you know, your cigarette lighter and your baseball cap or one old flashlight or something, uh, you're going to get in trouble. You're going to have, you know, you might die. Uh, so, A, we like to guide people who are interested in caving towards these caving clubs. Um, as you said earlier, um, the biggest mother load of these caving clubs is the National Speleological Society, which is in Huntsville, Alabama, their headquarters. And uh, I think a good analogy would be to say that the grottos are to the National Speleological Society what troops are to the Boy Scouts of America. Mm. They are local clubs. Yeah. But they're kind of a part of the NSS. Mm -hmm. <coughs> yeah, it has an ethics, it has Excuse an me. ethos, and it has a system and a and everything organization. And the other thing is this: um, not only I would say primarily it's a safety issue, you know. And you want to learn if you're really interested, we'll teach you. I mean, we'll take you to caves. Yeah, just to be clear, the the way to do it, you just go to that National Speleological Society website. You mm -hmm. go. And you look through their database, they have a list of grottos. So you find wherever you are, whatever town you're in, Richmond, Virginia, whatever, mm -hmm. look for your town or your county or your general region, and you'll find a grotto with an email address or phone number. And you can reach out to them. And most likely, if you're interested, they will take you out for free and get, they'll let you borrow gear like you've let us borrow mm -hmm. a million times, and they'll take you out if you're interested. Yeah. Well, it's caves.org. Okay. If that's caves.org or just, you know. Uh, Google National Speleological Society. Caves.org is basically where you would go. So, so yeah. So we were kind of saying one of the main reasons that protectiveness is not only to um, it's not only to preserve a delicate ecosystem. It's also safety, which is of extreme importance because people have died back there. Oh, people yeah. do get hurt back there, and um, this kind of transitions into what I think is one of the coolest things about you is you were telling me you used to be a firefighter, you had decades as an EMT, and now one of your main um, roles in caving for this region is your part of cave rescue. So tell us, um, well, let, let's well, pause. Let me, let, me, let me back up and say okay. one more thing about if you want to go caving and you're listening to this and it's interesting to you, is the other big reason is not only safety and learning how to do it right, and learning the cave from somebody that knows it. But also, another very important thing is, is landowner relations, because the vast majority of caves anywhere, uh, certainly in the United States, are on Farmer Joe's farm. You know, I mean, and 
you know, you're 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 not really allowed to trespass on other people's farmland. Um, yeah, this is asking a lot. You yeah. know, I think hunters are used to um, being able to hunt like on their family land, on national forest, you know, public land, or every once in a while getting some some little uh, getting some permissions right from mm-hmm. different landowners. But to kind of have the permission for like an entire community of people to go into their land. That is kind of asking a lot. Yeah. Just um, that like any, any day of the week, like 10 people just show up and start heading into your woods and crawling into a hole. It it does seem like it is asking a lot. So I can see why you guys would kind of want to maintain, uh, the health of those relationships with the landowners. Yeah. There are a few wild caves where you can just go and there's no restriction, but I would say most of them, 95% 95% of them require some kind of uh, relationship with the owner. And, and that's the other, there were the two things I would, two points I wanted to make were the safety, doing it right, doing it safely, blah, blah, blah. And then the other thing is we try and develop, develop relationships with owners, with landowners. And usually landowners are pretty nice. I mean, occasionally they don't want to be bothered. They don't want you on their land. And I can certainly understand that. I'm sure that the people listening to this wouldn't want everybody crawling all over their backyard every weekend and uh, poking around and leaving candy bar wrappers and stuff like that. So, you know, I mean, you can aggravate a landowner to the point where they close the cave for years until you get a new landowner. Uh, so another important reason you should go and find a local caving club or grotto if you want to go caving is that we've developed good relationships with these landowners and we do what we say we're going to do. And if you do, I deal with Appalachian landowners and it's interesting because it's psychological. Um, I can't speak for other areas, but I could tell you in, in Appalachia that, People uh, have an old uh, honor ethic, and if you do what you say you're going to do, there's one landowner that I contacted, I don't know, 10 years ago, and we wanted to get back in his caves because the property had recently changed hands, and uh, we, uh, he said, well, I'll let you and your group go in my caves, but I want you to do me a favor, build some fences around these caves cave entrances so my hunting dogs don't fall in the cave and one of the entrances is 300 feet so you know 300 feet vertical (laughs) vertical yeah just an open pit just to get into the cave yeah but just like in the woods there's just a hole that drops 300 feet yeah you got to be careful walking around in the woods in west virginia i mean a many an animal has run through the woods at night and whoop you know what was that you know and then the next thing wham you know they're at the bottom of the 300, hitting the rocks 300 feet down. So, wow. so we built these fences, and it took two months. And uh, he was extremely pleased. He said, you did what you said you were going to do. And uh, it's probably been five years now or so that he's, we've had a good relationship with him. So, yes, we develop relationships with landowners, thereby facilitating access to more caves. I mean, the the great uh, privilege for someone interested like me is I get to skip all of that trying to find the location. Like, I've only gone caving like 
seven, eight times with you guys. Mm-hmm. And I've seen some of the most incredible things ever. And that's because you guys have done all that work for decades. And I've seen the most extraordinary things, whether it's- You haven't seen anything yet. This I mean, coming summer, to, I'm going to take you to some places that are going to bl- blow you away. Well, I mean, you took us the last place, which is close to where we live. You took us to an underground waterfall. Mm-hmm. And it has a ceiling. So it's like the the ceiling- just water is just basically kind of coming out of a creek that is only like a few inches from a ceiling. And then there's just a waterfall in this little like altar. It seems like you're in a little, it seems like you're in a, a room, like in a, in a, in a church. Mm-hmm. It had like a very altar, um, an altar vibe to it. Extraordinary. I mean, what, literally an underground waterfall. How many people have seen that on earth? On planet yeah, Earth, in the history of humankind, that's something I think is so great about caving. In the history of humankind, how many people have seen some of those locations? I mean, maybe a few thousand? Well, well, probably more than that, but I mean, not much more than that. But mm-hmm. I mean, some of the some of the features that you that are really interesting, they're not like right inside the cave either. I mean, they're like maybe a half a mile, you know? Yeah, it, it, there's a um, uh, barrier to entry. There's a large barrier to entry. So I think we've done a really cool first section here. Now, one of the most interesting things about you is you're into, you've been an EM, a career EMT, and now you're real deep into cave rescue. Mm-hmm. So one of the most fascinating things getting into caving and learning from you guys is when shit goes south, <laughs> the firefighters don't necessarily are going down in there because they don't know very much about this. So the caving community is often who is called upon to go rescue cavers when they're hurt or worse. So tell us a little bit about that. And then maybe you could kind of describe a cave uh, scenario of a, a disaster and how you guys would tackle it. Like okay. how the rescue, like, yeah. So first, yeah. Okay. So, well, first of all, um, yeah, I was a volunteer EMT and paramedic. Okay. Not career. Okay. Not, you know, not that it matters, but I just thought I'd say that. Uh, so for 13 years, I was on the ambulance in Montgomery County, Maryland, and I was one of the first paramedics back in the 70s and firefighter. And I went to pre-med and went to college, wanted to be a doctor, never got to be a doctor. But anyway, so I was always interested in emergency medicine and emergency stuff in general. And then when I moved to Ocean City, I got in the Coast Guard auxiliary and, you know, we, I've always been into this emergency adventure thing, helping people, you know, ambulance high, and whatnot. High, high stakes High emotion, high energy. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, I moved to Virginia, not surprisingly, because I met a woman who lives in Virginia and we got married. So I, you know, kind of pulled up stakes, uh, you know, where I was on the Eastern Shore and had uh, moved here. So didn't really have time to get into the fire department and all of that stuff here. I probably would have, but um, so then I went back to school and I got my degree at X-ray. So I worked well. I worked the emergency room for three years, and then I was an X-ray tech for five years, and I'm retired now. But anyway, that's the background of why I'm interested in cave rescue. 
um, <clears throat> there are subdisciplines in caving. There are people who uh, like to make like to find new caves. That's a sub interest. And then there are uh, people who are seriously into making cave maps. There are, fortunately, there are almost every cave map you will ever see, even including in the national parks, were made by volunteers. There are very, very few paid speleologists. Uh, more in Europe, but anyway. Um, so, you know, there's finding caves as a subdiscipline. There's making maps of caves. There's uh, cave management, which I'm, you know, into because I manage like five caves, wild caves. There's cave rescue, um, cave diving. Then uh, there's vertical. Vertical, vertical which work. Means to describe that, that's, um, that's kind of like rock climbing. Going, that's the rope work, going down. Yeah up and down into enormous chasms as, yeah. a, as opposed to what I've done, which is there's no ropes involved. It's mainly crawling. You got a helmet, maybe knee pads and it's, it's crawling and walking and, and belly shimmying. Yeah. One of our plans is to get you involved in that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, um, you've got to, uh, you've got to learn there, you know, like I say, there's sub So if you, I would say roughly, and this is just a guess, I would say roughly one-fifth of the caves in this area in eastern West Virginia, I say, uh, require vertical work hmm. to get into or out of or negotiate pits and climbs and things in, inside the cave. So, uh, you know, like I say, they're very natural environments that we're not used to, and some of that involves uh, vertical relief. You know, you, you, that's another reason why you really need to be careful in caves because your next step may be a 500-foot pit, you know. So you need to be uh, – so anyway, those are the sub-disciplines and the ones that my wife and I are the most interested in are cave rescue and just uh, taking people who've – you know, new, new people who are interested, um, taking them caving and uh, teaching them all about it like we're talking about on this podcast, but not just talking about it, but actually getting dirty. Mm -hmm. it. Um, so what might be a scenario? So I was saying it'd be kind of interesting to the way to talk about the rescue would be like, have a scenario, either one you make up or one that was real. Well, like how might things go down? Uh, well, um, <clears throat> It was the day after the 4th of July, a couple of years ago. And we got a call for somebody who, two people went into a cave in West Virginia and they never came back out again. And their kids were in the car. That's a whole other issue, but they left their kids in the car. So the kids drove to a telephone 18 hours later, gotten dark, it was around midnight. And they're like, well, Dad's, I don't know where Dad is. He must be lost in the cave. So they drove to a phone and called 911, which is what we want you to do. The first thing we want you to do if you're, if you're looking for help is you just call 911. Um, 
and uh, the the fire department went there, and it, it's it's. I mean, you know, I was in the fire department, and and you know, it's not a diss of uh, of uh, of fire and rescue at all. It's just that it's it's a weird it's a weird uh, subspecialty. You know, I mean, most firemen, even in cave rich in areas, are not. It's it's kind of technical, you know. So. A lot of times they'll go there and they'll they'll call for the cavers to help. Okay, so the National Speleological Society has different branches. And one of them is the National Cave Rescue Commission. And the National Cave Rescue Commission is primarily for educating people. We teach about six or seven types of classes. Some of them are a weekend, some of them are are weeks. And um, so we'll teach you if you're interested, fire department personnel, sheriff's office, EMTs, paramedics, anybody who's interested, um, the particulars of of cave rescue, which are different from even confined space rescue. Um, because it's it's just different. I mean, there's no communications underground. You need to run wires and run telephones and getting people out of tight spaces is is an art in, unto itself. I mean, just if somebody falls into a, a crack, that's a whole other subspecialty. Getting getting people out of cracks. Uh, so you know, basically, there's there are different cave rescue things. There's I like to say there's lost injured and pinned uh, I personally think injured and pinned is probably the most difficult and sometimes we get animals out you know the farmer's cow will fall in or dog or whatever I mean that happened with a dog about 10 days ago down near Covington Virginia a dog um, so Yes, we teach people, and we also organize the volunteer cavers. You know, say you call 911 about a cave rescue. Say one of your pals broke his leg, and he's two miles into the cave. You call 911. They go there. They set up lights and everything. They'll usually call us. And then these cave rescue teams are kind of, you know, eventually going to be spearheads of, of, of... you know, kind of a recon thing. You go there, you figure out what you need. Do you have the resources? And then, of course, we'll still be calling cavers because cave rescues are probably one of the most labor-intensive, incredibly uh, tiring um, endeavors you can possibly imagine because if you have a house fire and the firefighters go in, you know, they get tired, the initial crew... Yeah, they get worn out after half an hour, and then they have to come out and do rehab, and then you send in another crew. Well, when you've got a guy or a woman or whatever that's a mile back in a cave, and they have a fractured femur or whatever, you know, thigh bone, um, say they weigh 250 pounds, getting that person out of that cave with all of these different 
obstacles that we've talked about, vertical pits, little tiny squeezes you can hardly get through without taking off your helmet. It requires a lot of work, a lot of sub-disciplines, and yes, you're going to be calling for more help. So we will, I don't know what the average cave rescue uh, numbers are as far as, I would say it's probably around 50 maybe 50 people you know involved in a, in 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 the average cave rescue in my opinion uh, you know of course you there are other things too that are very important like lights redundancy of you know lights and batteries and water and uh, you know food and and heat you know you got to stay warm but to me the most important thing and i think a lot of people would agree with this is that you must tell people what you're doing so say to your surface contact, which is what we call it, um, we're going to this cave, we're going to go to the waterfall, it's me and, you know, name the people. And if we're uh, not back by midnight, call for help. And that's very, very important. And, and a lot of times people don't do that. We're not familiar with caving. They'll just go caving and not think of it. And, uh, and then there's nobody coming to look for you. <laughs> which is not good. So this was two years ago, the day after the 4th of July, in West Virginia. And so they went and they called 911, and the fire department went there, and they called for the cavers to come and help them. And uh, we, we did. We ran phone lines into the cave and uh, uh, got different rescue uh, groups, you know, search teams, you know, we consist of about four or five people. And, uh, you know, we have the cave map at the entrance and uh, they give them cave maps. And we say, you search this area and your search team alpha or whatever. And, uh, uh, you know, then we run phone lines into the cave and they can tell us what's going on. We found them. We found evidence that they went down here, you know, that kind of thing. And so this one particular rescue took 18 hours. The, the, the two people were in the cave for 18 hours, and they, didn't know where, they completely went the wrong direction from where they wanted to go and um, were completely lost. So they decided to just stay put, wait for somebody to come and help them, which is a good idea. <clears throat> if, you, if you get in trouble and you really feel that you're in trouble, you should just stay put. Because occasionally you'll run across a rescue scenario where the, the rescue people are trying to find you and you keep moving, you know. So they might search one area and you're not there and then you move and, you know. So if, if you ever do get in trouble, certainly stay in one place, find a nice, a warm place. Hypothermia is a big problem around here in caves because they're 53 to 50, yeah, about 54 degrees Fahrenheit around here. So anyway, it took 18 hours. Um, one of the teams found them and brought them out. <laughs> and I remember we were going to ask the guy some questions, you know, because you have to, you know, it's it's a rescue. And it was pretty funny because he's like, get out of the way. I got to have a cigarette. I haven't had a cigarette in 18 hours. So the, so we went to, went to his car and had a cigarette, and then we continued on. But Blacksburg Cave Rescue uh squad came and helped with that. I'll grab your bag. Uh, that part's a little tight. Uh, 
Uh, Nutty Putty Cave in uh, Utah comes to mind. That was about 10 years ago now, I guess. And that was a medical student from who went to school at Johns Hopkins in uh, Baltimore. And uh, he uh, went back. He was from, I think he was from near Salt Lake City. So, so he went back to hang out with his family. I can't remember whether it was uh, Thanksgiving or what it was. But anyway, he went back to Utah. And they went caving in Nutty Putty Cave, which is in right in the middle of Utah. Uh, and uh, he, uh, there are a lot of crawlways there. It's a pretty dry cave. And he, uh, I guess he was about 25 years old. And he went off down an area that he thought was called the birth canal. And it wasn't. It was a different passage. And um, he did one thing that you never want to do. You never want to go downhill, downward, into a tight passage that you're not sure where it goes. Because if it opens up into a big room, you can turn around and go back out again. If it doesn't, if it doesn't go anywhere, good luck getting back out backwards. So that's one of the basic safety rules. But anyway, so this gentleman, I can't remember his name, crawled into this little tiny itty-bitty 18-inch by 24-inch. It's it may have been 18 by 18. It was very small. And he crawled down in there, and it didn't go anywhere. So you just barely were able to see his feet, I believe. So he was stuck in there upside down. And you don't want to be upside down because it does weird stuff to your brain after a time. You know, the fluid, your body's not made to be upside down. So they tried like the devil to get him out of there for hours and hours and hours. You know, rigged pulleys in there, bolted the pulleys to the walls with ropes and tried to pull him out by making harnesses and putting them on his legs and everything and it, it just they couldn't get him out so <clears throat> excuse me so he's still there he was never there was never a body recovery he's still in that uh crawlway and the cave is closed and cemented shut that's his it's his final resting place now nutty putty cave in utah I, I think it was a doctor who got in there and was, you know, said, no, he's, he's gone, you know. But, um, yeah, certainly there are times when people either fall a distance and it's you're simply you know, not recoverable. Uh, you know, I would say that these rocks are harder than cement, I think, than concrete and or cement. And, uh, you know, you if you hit your head on a, on a hunk of limestone from 20 feet up, you're going to probably kill yourself. Well, and of course, the cave rescue in Thailand where the, 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 the soccer team was, uh, was trapped for days and days, you know, that was unquestionably, I think, Everybody agrees that was the most complex, incredibly worrisome scenario ever that we can recall for cave rescue because they had to do multiple cave dives through, dives through different sumps, finally found the chamber where they were, finally figured out they were, how they were going to get them out of there, and then they're like, oh, it's going to start raining again. This soccer team... Um, 
went in a cave in Thailand, a wild cave that is known to flood during monsoon season completely. But there, there are pockets in there that you can get into if it floods. And they had done that. But if it keeps raining, <clears throat> it floods completely. So they were pushed into a situation where had they not done things that they've never done before, like sedate, like get a physician in there and sedate the children and uh, outfit them with special face masks for the diving equipment. And then, uh, but they had to be knocked out because otherwise they would have been panicked. Um, So they knocked them out and they got them all out of there before the thing flooded. And uh, one of the uh, Thai um, military divers uh, lost his life there. And there was a, uh, there's a statue there of him. And um, he, he was just ferrying uh, air bottles. And uh, somehow he, he, he got into some situation where he, uh, he ran out of air. So, you know, it's, it's very dangerous, uh, especially cave diving accidents. But that was, that was a very interesting cave rescue and certainly very, very complex. And, and I know even caves around here that there are some that you need to be conscious of the weather because oh, yeah. of because a little, can you describe that? A little stream, which is ankle deep, which is extraordinary to walk in in the underworld. A little stream, what could happen? Well, this is actually one of the caves that comes to mind that I'm going to take you and Vivian to next summer, hopefully, or, you know, whenever. Uh, is in West Virginia, and it's a very nice cave. Beautiful. Just has every imaginable kind of interesting thing you can think of. And uh, on the way out, there's this stream passage that's probably two hours it takes to go from one point to the exit. So you're in this canyon for two hours. And if you look up, it's, it's narrow. It's about four feet wide average. And you have to climb up and down. And if you look up, the ceiling is 70 feet up in this uh, canyon. And you and got water at your feet? You do. I would say it's normally at ankle, ankle depth. But if you look up 70 feet, you see stuck to the walls, leaves, sticks, things like that. So you're like, well, I guess this cave passage floods 70 feet deep sometimes. So... I personally have gone there a number of times, and five times I have canceled the trip at the last minute because of potential rain. That is so terrifying. That's and Indiana into Jones. a different cave. That's like a scene in Indiana Jones. Oh, yeah. You don't want to be trapped in a cave with rising water. I mean, usually it depends on where, where the situation, but often you can get yourself to high ground in the cave and wait it out. And... Uh, 
And the water will recede. The thing about the one in Thailand was it wasn't going to recede. It was going to be season. for, you know, six months. Season. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know I've gone on a trip without you guys with another leader, and um, there was the sump, the little bathtubs that you're kind of describing. Mm. But there was, it was not in the process of flooding, but there was more water than usual, and there was no headspace. So after our guide, our leader went through the hole, I mean, literally dove. We're just, it's just, all we're looking at is we've been caving and now there's a pool. And the leader in our group with headlamp on, normal caving clothes, the water's freezing cold, mm -hmm. just dives under the thing. And then we just hear his voice a few seconds later on the other side of some rocks, you know, on the, in another chamber. And it's just like, holy God, we're diving through this. And so one by one, we all just kind of dove in that direction and waited for the hands of the other cavers to like zoom us, to pull us out of this murky water. And you come out of the water and everyone's headlamps are blasting in your face like you've just been reborn. It felt very, <laughs> very, felt, felt very much like a rebirth or a, bapt a baptism. But um, um, I bring that up just because the, the water element in the cave adds a whole other level. I think I know where you're talking about. Yeah. That's actually in our rescue area. That makes sense. And I, I go, that's another thing you do. It's, it's just like a pilot. You go through these things in your head and you should. You go, well, what, what, what would I do if X happened or mm -hmm. Y happened? And, you know, it's, yeah, how it's would you helpful. Get, how, if, someone was, if someone was unconscious, how would you get them through that flood sump? Well, I guess you. Hey, I have been told. On. I have been told since then, since the last rescue there, which was before you went there, um, that you can pump that out. Oh, you can drain. I it. have been told that you can pump that out. Um, Interesting. Cave rescue is somewhat improvised. Um, you know, you can only learn so much about it, but then you're confronted with a situation that's unusual, and. You need to uh, figure out the best course of action. Mm. Um, I mean, I have had some ideas about that spot, mm. but they're just in my head about how you might, mm. how you might uh, possibly get somebody out of there. Mm. And it wouldn't be as difficult to do as the Thailand thing. Mm. Um, this morning we were talking, maybe a bit of a transition. Mm-hmm. This morning, we were talking a little bit about when you were doing your firefighter and EMT work. And I said, do you have any stories from, because obviously we're talking about cave rescue. So there's the, the element of saving people. And when I asked you, did you have like a story from basically like a life of saving people? Do you have a story from that? That is a really meaningful. And I told you not to tell me in advance, but you said it, it was kind of this, uh, intro you give people who are interested in any type of rescue or in EMT work or. Yeah, I was at a picnic. Uh, when it was warm, right now it's after Thanksgiving. So anyway, we were at a picnic and there was a young man there, he's probably about 15, and he wanted to be a firefighter. And he was in school and he's uh, taking classes. Evidently they have 
classes for young people who were interested in going into the fire service. And uh, I was telling him, it's not like it is in the movies. It's not like it is on, t on Netflix. Uh, the real world is different. For example, and he didn't know this, if you go into a building that's on fire, and it's in the movies, everything's on fire, and somebody runs in, they grab the person, they run back out again. The reality is, in the real world, is you can't see anything. And you go into a burning building on your, you're crawling, because the temperature at the floor is, you know, say it's 2,000 degrees, 3,000 degrees at the ceiling. You know, it might be 150 on the floor, you know, something like that. So you're crawling. Visibility is sometimes zero. It's always better to lower because smoke rises. Anyway, so that's an example of something in the movies that you it is unrealistic. Um, another major thing that I was trying to press upon him is that in the emergency services, not just fires, but accidents, medical emergencies, what you find, and uh, I, uh, I have spoken with others and they agree with me, uh, it's not it's not like a horror movie. It's not like, oh, here I go on an accident and there's somebody's head rolling down the street and blood squirting all over everything. That actually isn't that huge a big a deal. You know, it's not as shocking. It's the thing that bothers you is the human stuff. And and you were asking me about a s instance. I recall going on an accident one time. I can't remember what she had. I think she ran into a tree, but she was like in her 80s or something. She was driving and she was killed. And uh, I recall that um, hanging on her keychain was a Walt Disney World medallion. And... Uh, I remember that she had apparently made some chicken soup, chicken noodle soup for people, and it was in jars, you know, mason jars, and that was smashed all over the car. And so it's the people you worry about. It's not blood and guts. It's the tragedy of, of you know, you care about the people. And... Uh, one of the worst things, uh, I, I recall, we went on an accident. I think this person hit a tree, too. I can't remember. But I think it was an attempted suicide because they just had a fight at their house, and they got in a car and floored it like a bat out of hell and then ran into a tree and killed it killed them. And then uh, some uh, body uh, said, oh, that's I know whose car that is. So they went to their house, and they got all their relatives they're like, uh, Fred just, I think he's dying. He's running into a tree. So all the relatives came down there and they're all screaming and crying and everything. You know, that was terrible. You know, you, the last thing you want is like, you know, 10 distraught relatives there. Cause they, A, they don't need to see that. And, um, you know, it makes things more difficult. Uh, but uh, yeah, certainly the, the relatives suffered seeing that, that they didn't need to. So the bottom line of what I'm trying to say is the real world is different from the movies. 
auto accidents are different. You know, you may play Grand Theft Auto V and have innumerable fatal accidents and the game resets, but brother, it doesn't reset in real life. So you better drive like your primary concern should be safety. It doesn't matter whether you get to dinner a half an hour sooner. Because a lot of times you won't get there at all the faster you want. So just be courteous driving and, and have safety. Have if you if you leave your you leave your place and you get your destination, nobody gets hurt, you're a winner. And I'm really into the high adrenaline avocations. But certainly a nurse working at Shock Trauma in Baltimore there's a huge turnover right there. And I remember, you know, after a while, I just, you know, I'm just, you know, I think I'm going to try and work at a gift shop at Disneyland, <laughs> you know, for a while. I mean, back in the day, you would have said for soldiers, like World War One, they say they're shell-shocked. Mm -hmm. Like now we say PTSD. I mean, from my point of view, just hearing some of the stories you've told, mm -hmm. there's gotta be an element of some PTSD. I mean, if you've seen that many people whose bodies have been destroyed and those little, those little extremely disturbing little details like the keychain, I mean, that has to wear you out. Like you said, I mean, the way you termed it was burnout, but I imagine it's like, you're just kind of, I imagine the nervous system has to get kind of frazzled. I imagine that yeah. you either become super cold and kind of, ha and like in needing to have a shield to kind of be able to handle this in wild, you know, this d world of death and yeah. life and death and the brutality, or you get kind of, I imagine you would get super worn out. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you one more anecdote and I'll try and do it without crying because I know you have a dog. So I'll just say it quickly so you I don't cry. get emotional. You can uh, I remember one house fire I went to, and the, the house burned, and all the pets went into the bathtub of their own volition and were trying to breathe out of the drain. They all died. And I remember having to carry this big dog out to the owner, and I gave them their dog. And, you know, I was crying. And uh, I remember her saying, this is hard on you, isn't it? So. They said that to you. Yeah. I mean. You they said it's cry. hard on you too. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, most people go through their life and maybe they have one, you know, one thing that happens, you know, that's extremely stressful. But when you do it every day, it's, it's really stressful. And uh, I'd like to say one other thing about police. The fire people like me, we deal with Mother Nature. Fires are predictable. I, 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 have a great, I, I realize that there are some rotten apples in police departments, but I, to me, they're few and far between. And some departments probably have cultures that need to be modified, you know. But all in all, I always tell police officers when I see them that I really appreciate what they do. And they can't get paid enough. I mean, you. I mean, when you go out and you deal with people who are like nuts, 
and they have weapons and they're on drugs and, you know, have a gun in their pocket, you know, and they have nothing to lose. I mean, that's, that's a hard job dealing with people. People are unpredictable. So, uh, you know, next time you see a police officer, don't think about, you know, the ones that are bad apples that beat people up, but they exist, of course. Uh, think about all of the vast majority of them who really don't get paid enough to do that. Without Go out every day and protect you. And that's what they're doing. Maybe some people think they're just trying to collect revenue. Uh, they're not. They're trying to protect you from bad things. There are spooky people yeah. out there. And it is, it is uh, yeah, to be grateful that there's a, bar uh, a barrier between the average person and some more nefarious folks out there. And, you know, uh, unfortunately, almost the universal response I get from police officer is they're surprised because people don't really express their gratitude for the amount of danger that they put themselves in every day for us. So, Well, any of these people, like you said, your own stuff doing the firefighting and the EMTs, be grateful that there are experts that are putting their own <laughs> lives in danger and having a whole lifetime or decades of their life of just these brutal experiences so that if something bad happens to you one day, they might be the ones, they might be the cavers who come get you. They might be the firefighter that pulls you or your pet out at the last second. Mm -hmm. did, did, you have, did you have experiences where you were crawling on the floor through a fire? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, every time you went to a house fire that was significant, you know, you know, I mean, if it was the, the chickens on fire in the oven, it wouldn't, it wasn't a situation, but you know, where it, you know, got out of the oven and, you know, room and contents for the kitchen, you know, and, you know, maybe a couple of rooms or something. Yeah, certainly you're going to have to crawl in. Do you have any insight <clears throat> on why you are? So clearly there's a theme of saving people. Mm -hmm. And there's um, a theme of uh, life or death and um, tight spaces, obviously, like a tunnel of fire or the caves. Do you have any ideas, any insight on why this has kind of uh, been a large chapter of your life has been dedicated to these things? <laughs> I think it all started when I was about two or three. We lived in Bethesda, Maryland, and there was a road off of River Road just north of the D.C. Maryland line uh, River Road, uh, and it was called Butler Road, and it's still called Butler Road. You can look it up on Google Maps. And uh, there were, on Butler Road, it was an industrial area, and there were dozens of these tanks, um, maybe held, held a million gallons each, or maybe, maybe not quite that much, but there were some million-gallon tanks there. And they were on fire, fuel oil. And next to them were huge tanks full of gasoline. And, of course, the fire department was primarily concerned that it didn't get into the gasoline, you know, because that would have been, you know, you know, another Nagasaki there. That would have been real interesting. Uh, so I remember going down there, my, my mother and father, uh, they were like, wow, look at all that smoke, that black smoke rolling overhead. 
So we jumped in the car, and I was like two or three. We went down there, and we stood there, and we watched it. And I remember sitting on my father's shoulder. And, you know, it was quite dramatic. Uh, it was about 1958 or nine. the Butler Road oil fire. You can probably Google that. Butler, Royal, Butler Road oil fire, 1959 or whatever. Um. It just, you know, I mean, children are impressionable when they're like two, three, four, five, you know, maybe up to about eight, maybe not that, maybe seven. They're real impressionable. And I think sometimes if something happens, and also as a child, I had t tuberculosis and I went to the pediatrician a lot. And I think that's what got me interested in medicine, being a doctor. And then the Butler Road oil fire probably got me interested in uh, the fire department. It was exciting, you know? It's exciting. Some people don't like exciting things. Some people do. Um, and uh, there's, an, there's a wor word, I think it must be Latin. It's chthonic. I think it's C-H-T-O-N-I-C-K. Okay. C-H-T-O-N-I-C, and I think it means of the underworld. Oh. There's an element of this that's of the underworld. Like you are this, like if we were speaking in mythological terms, are this character that has been able to go in and out of the underworld. You're going into literally the underworld caves, mm -hmm. going into the pits of fire, going into a land of of the dead, and like bringing people back from the verge of death. It's kind of fascinating that like you've been going back and forth into the underworld. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe if I psychoanalyzed myself deeply, I'd find that I'm constantly trying to come grip, come to grips with death. You know, mm. I mean, I think we all worry about death and wonder what it is, and you know, oh, we don't want it, and when am I going to die? And uh, maybe I've been preoccupied with, uh, I don't know. Maybe a lot of my, a lot of my, uh, in my youth, you know, I remember my grandfather's death, but I don't know. I guess. I guess it's a way of dealing with your mortality. Uh, but um, another thing about caving that most people don't encounter on a daily basis is you have to be so concentrated on what you're doing that it, it knocks every, all of your cares out of your head. Great point. Vivian, when I told her for my birthday, like three, four years ago, I said, I started, I knew she would never say I'm going to go caving. I knew she'd be freaked out, claustrophobic, um, anxious about it. So I just started talking about caving. And she literally was saying like, oh, I'd never do it. No way. You'd never get me there. And then I said, <laughs> hey, we're going tomorrow morning. <laughs> and now she absolutely loves caving. And she feels just what you said. And I agree. <laughs> and I feel the same way with hunting because mm -hmm. you're holding a deadly weapon yeah. You're, you're engaged in life and death. You're taking a life for your own, mm -hmm. for food. Yeah. Um, there's zero bullshit in your head. You are, when you're caving, yeah. it is so, it, that's part of that calmness. You're, yeah. It's so, it's what people are aiming for with meditation. It's that- It's an interesting point. Presence. It's that pure in the present. Well, let's say you take five people with you. You're responsible for their lives and they can get killed. Mm. You have to do the right thing, and you mm. have to be concentrated on things. And if I always tell people, if you don't feel comfortable with something, please, nobody's going to judge you. Speak up. If you don't feel comfortable climbing over that 
hole in the floor or whatever, don't do it. Tell me. I this is I don't want to do this. Because mm -hmm. we're here, we're not here. You know, if you were there to save somebody's life, it might be a different situation. But if you're there just to look at the cave and and whatnot, it's not worth killing yourself. So yeah, I mean you have to be it it is, I mean, you could get lost, you could fall in a you could get killed, falling in a hole, you know. So when you're ever you're doing something like that that requires your complete concentration, I think I mentioned flying an airplane is similar to that too. I don't imagine you're too much worried about balancing your checkbook when you're landing an airplane. Yeah. You know. So caving is sort of like that. You yeah. know, it's it's you really gotta be focused. You're in the moment and yeah, you're you in your be body. Fo focused, focused for your life and for the people that are with you. Mm -hmm. So that makes it different. It's a different hobby. It's not for everybody. Maybe to wrap this up, because we've been talking for a good while and I've been thoroughly enjoying this. Thank you. Um, maybe to wrap it up. Um, so you're saying, I uh, you were just mentioning if you were to kind of psychoanalyze yourself, saying this preoccupation with death. Mm -hmm. And then that kind of wrapped in with, we've had, <clears throat> I've helped, I've come and helped you a little bit with some of the stewardship for your caves mm -hmm. um, with helping making a staircase, stuff like that. And I've really enjoyed some of our conversations regarding religion mm -hmm. and um, you have studied religion at, at, at the academic level as a gen, yeah. as a generalist, uh -huh. just of religion in general. Um, do you think that idea of having seen that other side, having been on that, at that edge of death so much in your life, saving people from that edge of death, do you think that might tie in with your um, scholarly interest in religion? Well, I mean, I did go to George Mason University and study religion for a while, and uh, but you I'm don't... kind of into it. Um, I I think that I think that originally religion was intended in hum human beings to be an explanation of the natural world and how to deal with it. I believe nowadays much much of religion certainly there there are hundreds, if not thousands, of different belief systems that most of them have to do with dealing with death nowadays. Nobody wants to think they're going to just die and drop into a black void and that's it. And you certainly don't want to think you're never going to see your mother again, et cetera, et cetera. So they deal with it uh, by, uh, you know, believing what they want to believe. Um, you know, I, I, I approach it from a sociological psychological standpoint. Um, I, I certainly believe a lot of religions are harmful to people because I believe that it's you're 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 closer to the truth if you know you don't know than you are if you think you know something false. And force other people in, to do uh, well, that too, some, yeah. some rules that you and a group of people have made up. Yeah. And, and and frankly, none of us know. I mean, I don't care what you say you think you know. You know in the back of your head you don't know. Yeah, oh, I agree That's with that. That's why you cry at a funeral. If you really believe there was life after death and you were going to see your mother again in, in the happy world, then you, would, you wouldn't be crying. You know, and I've heard apologetics about that. But, um, uh yeah, no, I don't think I've ever really 
I, I thought I was an atheist for a long time. Then I learned about religions, and I realized that the closest thing, maybe even closer than atheism, is Taoism. And I consider myself to be a a Taoist, a of the the original Taoism come up with by uh, Lao Tzu in China, a contemporary of Confucius. Um, if you read the Tao Te Ching, which you can read online or you can get it at the bookstore, it's not a very long book. It's You can read it in an evening. Uh, you know, first of all, you're going to go, well, what was that all about? And then if you read it again, I would say if you read it about 10 times, you'll start to understand it. And it, it doesn't ask the fundamental questions of what, what's life all about, what am I supposed to be doing, et cetera, et cetera. It's more just a basic, it's hard to describe. I mean, I guess you would say it has to do with the interconnectivity of the universe with you. Um, I don't worry about death. I don't think. Maybe I do. Maybe that's why I'm interested in all this stuff. But um, I don't really. I worry about pain. Yeah. I don't worry. I I don't know. Maybe I often wonder if I just say this because everything's so nice, just like being alive. But mm-hmm. I really don't think I would mind dying. Um I mean, I used to drink to the point of blacking out. I mean, that's kind of dying. I mean, you just disappear. Mm-hmm. Um I don't, you know, I don't I feel like we almost die every day. And I feel like I've been alive. I, I sometimes I get weirded out when people say that they, um, I'll meet like a sixty-year-old or a seventy-year-old. Well, sixties, fifties, sixties, and they'll say that they still feel eighteen. Like my dad has said. Yeah, that. I don't feel that. I feel like I've been alive for a million years already. Interesting. And so I don't mind. I feel like I, I don't mind dying. Mm-hmm. It's just pain is terrifying. Yeah, you know, being paralyzed or being in uh, or you know slowly dying with a terrible disease that's obviously terrifying but the actual disappearing into whatever's next whether that's nothing or whether that's something incredible that we can hardly conceive that maybe some mystics and some religions maybe have intuitions on glimpses of what that might be i don't think i'm necessarily too scared of that but i am kind of scared with psychedelics so i've done the smallest amount of stuff like that so that's kind of a so maybe i am kind of scared of it i'm not really sure I think that almost everybody is going down the wrong road, and I don't think they know it. And I think something I've never heard anybody say before, but I think it's worth thinking about. It does come to the intersection of science and philosophy. Um, Maybe all of this is not right. Maybe all of what we've been taught is completely wrong. Any religion. But think about this for a minute. We do know that we've got time and space and matter. And um, if the universe is infinite, and it's infinite for an infinite amount of time, that means that anything that could happen will happen an infinite number of times. So, you know, maybe you will see your mother again. You may not remember her, but I don't necessarily, I think the, 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 the life and the world and 
the universe is more complicated than people that you can't just shake some sticks and look up at the sky and think you figured out everything. Um, Incredible, infinite mysteries. Yeah, who knows? That's why I'm interested in religion. That's why I'm interested in paranormal stuff because I just feel like there's, who the hell knows what's going on? And we will learn more and more over time. But I feel like the more science learns, as incredible as that is, it just equally opens up more mysteries. Oh, it does. It definitely. <laughs> Even just since they've started looking at stuff from the James Webb Space Telescope, mm. they've started rethinking some basic cosmologic principles. Mm. So, yeah, we don't really know what's going on. Mm. But I think it's entirely possible that, you know, I mean, I, I'm not saying you're going to see your mother again after you die, but... <laughs> Who knows? Uh, you know, if it's an infinite universe and infinite number of things happen infinite number of times, um, and it may just be beyond our capability of understanding. If so, you look at an ant walking down the sidewalk, it has no idea about what's in Paris, you know? Well, that's what, <clears throat> that's what the famous hard science fiction, right? Hard science fiction means science fiction that's based in contemporary science. It's not like fantasy. So Arthur C. Clarke, who wrote 2001 Space Odyssey with Stanley Kubrick, mm -hmm. um, he's a hard sci-fi writer, was a hard sci-fi writer, an amazing one. Um, he has a quote along the lines of, um, you know, could it, if, 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 as the ant could never contemplate what we are, so would we not be able to contemplate something as a, beyond us, and that would be a god. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that's kind of fascinating. Um, um, let's see. Oh, slipping from my mind. I was just gonna say, oh, oh. so I definitely, and you've, you've said it in your own words, you know, you're definitely of a very, um, I feel like you're a very, have a material way of seeing the world. Like what mm -hmm. science, what you can touch is real. Um, what's scientific. So like I can, you know, when we've had religious conversations, um, I feel like your interpretation of it is uh, a very academic one. Not as, you know, I talk to herbalists who are extremely spiritual people mm -hmm. who tell me they they can sense a spirit in trees. They communicate with trees. Very different temperament. Um, has there been anything? Maybe in closing, has there been anything from your experiences, like as an EMT, that have been a glimpse of like, like I do believe in an afterlife. I don't know what that means, but I think that we don't understand a lot. And there's so many people who have um, experiences with ghosts. I definitely believe in ghosts. I don't know what that is, mm -hmm. but I believe in that. And I've had my own experiences. There seems to be something else going on, whether it's multiple dimensions or like you said, infinite possibilities, whatever. Has there been anything in you that has been really strange, like in any of your EMT, like something that we kind of I mean, you when you your all your lights flickered when you mentioned something earlier when you started talking about the EMD stuff, all the lights started flickering. Like has they, we, they, they do that? Okay, all right. It's, I think it's the light bulbs are. Okay. I think they're plugged into a. I have regular light bulbs <laughs> okay. plugged into a dimmer switch, and it's rattles around. But uh, was there anything ever weird wow. in the EMT work that was kind of like, like that is so just a weird, so weird that you're just like I don't know what that is. You know, no. Not really. Yeah, I mean, I worked in the emergency room. I've mm -hmm. seen a lot of dead people. Mm -hmm. I've probably seen a thousand dead people, at least. 
And uh, no, I, I don't see any evidence that uh, we're anything but a biological entity. But I don't think we necessarily need to look at the old religions of the past to explain things. I think we should look forward and see what science discovers on a daily basis and see if maybe there isn't some other path to reality that we haven't we haven't even, you know, really. I mean, a thousand years from now, they're going to be looking back at us now and going, well, they were cavemen, you know. They were mm. very primitive. Mm. But um, I personally think there are ancient truths and wisdom that maybe the religions have said it in a way that has become extremely dogmatic, extremely even hurtful to, you know, to use for war and shit like that mm -hmm, mm -hmm. at the surface. But I think deep, deeply, I personally feel that the religions are all probably based on some deep psychological or spiritual truth, something like that. Yeah. Well, I'm not, you know, religions are good too. I'm not saying that, that, that you know, that, that you're in a church and you help people have, run soup kitchens and, you know, free clinics. And I mean, you know, certainly there's a lot of, there's probably more good stuff about religion than bad. But it's, uh, it's also important that you, know the truth and you know the, the truth could mean helping others too uh, and I think you're interconnected with other people and uh, everything I mean I you say am I spiritual or am I I believe that I mean I it's not unusual for me to thank a cave and pat it when I leave I'm sure a lot of people think that's kind of weird you know because it's a rock well that's animism in a way. I don't know to what level you have to go down to the atom or what before you start. I mean, you got a person and then a cat and then a, you know an insect and a bacterium and I don't know. It it's we're all interconnected, and you know maybe I do get some weird vibe that it's it's better for me if I'm on good terms with the cave. Hey, I fully I pray every time I enter the woods. I'm by myself. Like we li like the cave, there's no cell phone reception. So I enter a wilderness, mm -hmm. oh, maybe not wilderness, but I enter a track of woods without cell phone reception by myself with a gun. You can easily slide down a mountain on the rocks and the loose leaves. There's no, you know, some t majority of the time there's no trail. I always pray before I enter the woods, just say a little something. And it's like, you're saying thank you to the, to whatever it is. You might even be just speaking to something inside yourself, which is telling you to, be, have awe and be careful and respectful, all these sorts of things. All right, well, I think we can wrap this up. Um, I've really enjoyed this. Um, we go caving with you guys all the time. I look forward to more stuff. I, maybe just in closing, I'll say one of the things I think is so was so beautiful, uh, my observation of you and Cheryl, your wife, that I found really moving was when I first started getting into caving, um, I just offer to join on one of, so some, you know, you were talking about there are different kinds of trips. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's just for fun. Sometimes it's to help you guys fix the staircase in front of the cave. Mm -hmm. So one of the ones I joined you on without Vivian was you guys were going into, it must've been 45 minutes into the cave to repair a stalactite. So stalactite holds tight to the ceiling. Yeah. Stalactite comes down from the ceiling. Well, the way I remember it is st stalactite has a C and it hangs from the ceiling. Okay. And the stalagmite, stalagmite is on the comes ground. up from the ground. Right. It's got a G in it. So I think it was a stalag. 
tight. It was a broken stalactite. Uh-huh. So you with the back with a box with a drill in it with paleontology glue were pushing this thing through the cave. You had a backpack with more gear, and we went to this back chamber. And you and your wife and me and a few other people kind of helped you in repairing a broken uh, stalactite. Um, you used paleontology glue and some tiny, tiny little drill holes and wiring mm-hmm. to kind of a uh, the broken point. The, it was kind of a wavy, bacony looking yeah. piece yeah. had been knocked off by mm-hmm. by a caver at some point, mm-hmm. and you all were repairing it. Um, with the glue, and we tried to make it as seamless as possible by putting some ground mud back into the crack there. And the, I was really moved by that because I was like, wow, it's so amazing that there are people who are so passionate about repairing a broken rock <laughs> deep into the ground mm-hmm. that maybe a few hundred people in the entirety of human existence are going to ever see. Yeah, that's true. That yeah. blows my mind. That there and that is such for me. That's like such hope of human. Like all the news and shit pumps on us is how fucked up and gross humans are, and we're just a parasite that ruins the earth. Well, little examples like you and your wife repairing that rock really moves me. Like I was like, people care so much about the smallest things, and if enough people care about their own little small thing, that's going to be that is like absolutely beautiful and so hopeful. I think everything is interconnected. And I think that people need to be good to each other and the world and do what they can to make life easier for the universe. That's sort of what Taoism is. Do what you can to make life easier for the universe. You're part of the universe. Um, Don't fight it. Um... It's easier and it's more fun to hold the door for the lady behind you coming out of the grocery store than it is to let go of it. Every little thing you do uh, might not directly come back to you, but that's not the point. The point is that you're improving the situation. Try and constantly improve the situation. And be kind. Thank you.